Welcome to the podcast of Medora Pentecostal Church. We are a growing community of believers committed to bringing hope and building lives. We pray today's message is a blessing to you. Today, the book of Psalms, we're going to be going to the 119th chapter. And then we'll be going back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. We're going to begin with Psalms 119 and verse 89. And then moving into 2 Timothy 3 and 16. The psalmist said, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled. Settled. There's no debate. It's settled. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth, and they continue this day according to thine ordinances, for all are thy servants. Unless the law, unless the word of God had been my delights, I should have perished in my affliction. Somebody say, if it wasn't for the word, I would have perished. I will never forget thy precepts, for, they, for with them thou hast quickened me. Praise the Lord. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And then in 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Tonight, I want to ask a question in our study. How can I trust the Bible? How can I trust the Bible to be the word of God? How can I trust the Bible to be truth? Amen. How can I trust that? Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this season. I thank you, Lord God, for your word that we are studying. Lord, let it let it just come alive to us afresh and anew today. Let your word, Lord Jesus, uh, let it speak to us. Let it speak through us, God, and bring the life-giving force that flows through it. And we're going to give you praise for it all. In Jesus' name, let everybody say amen. amen. Turn to two or three people and tell them, how can I trust the Bible? You know, it amazes me and baffles me and aggravates me all the same time when I see somebody that is an actor playing an expert on something that he may have made a movie about. That, uh, you know, because he made a movie about a doctor, he's an expert at being a doctor. Or because he made a movie about science, he's a, you know. Anymore, it's really hard to find credible sources. In this culture of post-truth, it's really hard to find credible sources. Misinformation and lies have become so common that you have to triple check and quadruple check sometimes your sources to make sure you're not falling into the realm of propaganda. You're not falling into the realm of misleading and and, uh, uh, lies and fakes and hoaxes. I realize hoaxes are not new. I realize that misleading people with fake news has been around for a while. But the advent of social media both exposes the pseudo stories, but it also employs them. 
empowers them. Fake news, fake stories often take a life on their own. People don't care about the validity of the, the story as long as it furthers their, their agenda. You know, it's a good story, and it's, it's what I think, so therefore it is good. It seems to be the, the basis. And I will tell you, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle that a person falls on, there's fake news on both sides. Amen? Fake news on both sides. <clears throat> Truth should be uh, simple to define, for we're talking about what's real, what's true, what's verifiable, what's consisting, or what is unchanging. It should be, but it, it really isn't. Truth should speak to something being real or a fact or something actual. Uh, some base truth uh, on, on a, an assumption or a thought uh, rather than uh, a fact. They base it on emotions. Uh, they base it upon their feelings. So then they can now say, my truth. Because I feel it. It's right. Therefore, it's my truth. My truth. I want to tell you, I'm so glad the pharmacist doesn't do that way with my medicine. I feel like giving him an extra dose today. I'm going to throw that in there. I feel like this, you know, it's just, you know, it's, let's not worry about what, what, what the dosage is. Let's give him that. When truth is relative and emotions become reality, skepticism and cynicism and hopelessness soon follows because convictions make you stand. Convictions make you stand, and but yet today it's I, I want to create my own reality. I want to create my own reality. I, 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 I'm convinced today that our culture is a truth-impoverished world, seeking in the sea of fantasy and fraud. Society desperately reaches for something to hold on to because there are people today that are hungry for truth. They reach for the promise of truth from uh, the, the places of higher education and it's like reaching into the air. There's nothing there. <clears throat> we find that a floating debris of, of, of some past political system comes by, who would have ever thought that people would straining for Marxism and say, I want to go after Marxism or socialism or communism. I've lived long enough to know communism is not good. They kill people. Millions of people. So they reach for that truth, but it becomes nothing more than an anchor that pulls them down. If only there was a truth that could save society. If only there was a truth that could save society. If only there was something that is sure that we could hold on to, something absolute, something proven, something that is able to be a solid fixture that doesn't change with the winds of time or the rise and fall of people's feelings. Aren't you glad that there is one? I believe it to be here, right here, this book, the Bible. The Bible, the Word of God, has been proven and tested for thousands of years. I submit to you today, you can count on it, uh, you can know it, it to be real. Amen. I can speak from my heart. The veracity of my thought is that I know it because it saved me. One day I reached up to this when I needed truth, and it saved me. It saved me. Amen. 
in answering the question, can I trust the Bible, it requires a little bit of, of, of contemplation and it requires a person to get out of their laziness and think a little while. To, to answer that question, you've got to dig and study and pray and then dig and study and pray some more and then after that, dig and study and pray a little bit more. Researcher and noted Christian pollster George Barnia states that the Christian body in America is immersed in what he called a crisis of biblical illiteracy. Mr. Barna and Jim Castilli put the problem like this. America reveres the Bible, they say, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. Talking about Christians now, not people that, that don't call themselves a, a Christian, but Christians in general. Do you realize that 82% of Americans believe that the statement, God helps those who help themselves, is in the Bible? 82%. Do you know the statement, once saved, always saved, is not in the Bible? That's a false doctrine anyway, but we'll talk about that another time. How about this one? Spare the rod, spoil the child. It's not in the Bible. No, because what it really says, he that spareth his rod hates his son. Mm. That's a little bit, to me, even stronger. How about the statement, to thy own self be true? Not in the Bible. God works in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. It sounds good, but not in the Bible. I remember one time I was, I was with Bishop on a Monday night radio broadcast, Light for Living radio broadcast, and he is the, the consummate expert at handling phone calls and dealing with people. I've, I've always been just, just baffled by his ability to answer quickly and kindly. And one particular person called in and said, uh, Brother Walls, Where's that scripture that says the Lord will build a house with the boards that come out of your belly? <laughs> Honest. Where is that scripture? Well, <laughs> it ain't there. <clears throat> a Barnia poll continued with, it predicted at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Some of y'all just getting it. It's just like a delayed reaction going through the crowd. Yeah. Uh, another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. Some believe that Billy Graham preached the Sermon on the Mount. These are poll questions. You know what I say? It's time to get our Bible out. Time to study. It's time to know what thus saith the word of the Lord and be ready to give an answer for the reason of the hope that dwelleth within us. Be able to give an, an answer. I want to point to you, again, we're talking about thinking right now before we get into some things about how do you know uh, how you can trust the Bible. Before you can get to that point, you've got to also talk about your thinking a little bit and my thinking. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. You've heard this before. It's a great passage of Scripture. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
You present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable service. I began to look at this word reasonable, and it just began to show a new light into the understanding of this passage. The Greek sense here is spiritual and rational. Spiritual and rational. It really is characterized by a rational or uh, cognitive immateriality, especially contrast to physicality. Mr. Vines made, made that a little bit clear for me to understand when he says that this word logikos, L-O-G-I-K-O-S, pertains to, quote, the reasoning faculty reasonable rationale. So the sacrifice is to be intelligent in contrast to those being offered by ritual and compulsion. The presentation, he goes on to say, according to this word in the Greek, is to be accordance with spiritual intelligence of those who are new creatures in Christ and are mindful of the mercies of God. I want to tell you that we do not present our bodies a living sacrifice because of ritual. We don't do it by regulation. No one ever really offered a sacrifice who was compulsed or, or demanded that they do it. It was not a sacrifice. It was just something that, you know, no one in the Holocaust stood up and said, I'm just going to sacrifice my life for that. No, it was, it was murder. It was, it was compulsory. But when it comes to presenting your body a living sacrifice, it begins with logical, reasonable thinking. Some people believe when they come to God, they got to check their brain at the door. Worst mistake we could ever make is checking our brain at the door when it comes to believing God. But I believe what the Lord wants for us is that he wants us to think. Somebody say, I got to think. I got to think. Paul, Paul begins that verse by saying, I beseech you therefore, brethren. I beseech you therefore, brethren. My dad always told me, he said, when you see the word therefore, you need to stop and see what it's there for. So I did. I went back to a few verses before that in Romans chapter 11 and verse 33, and it connects the whole thought when it says in 11 and 33, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Amen. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him... And through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So therefore, because of his infinite riches, the depth of his riches of wisdom and knowledge, because he wants you to know his mind, because he wants you to understand and wants me to understand that everything is of him and through him and to him and all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Therefore, present your bodies a reasonable. Be reasonable with your, your service. Be reasonable with it. That the, the, the verse here is, or the word is also found in 1 Peter 2 and 2. 
where it says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. The sincere milk of the word. The verse literally is reading uh, that newborn babes desire the logical, unadulterated, pure milk of the word. Somebody say logical. The reason a lot of times we fall flat on our face trying to defend scripture is that we quote scripture to somebody that doesn't believe scripture. That's really great to quote scripture when you have someone that wants to talk to you about scripture and you know the word of God. But how do we deal with someone who is not going to want you to quote scripture but prove it to them otherwise? It begins with understanding I can approach God, his knowledge, logically, reasonably, thoughtfully. Now, don't mistake and just throw the spirit out of it because Paul didn't stop there. He said in verse 2 of Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, he said, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Amen. By the renewing of your mind. How do we do that? You'll find out it's by the spirit. But he says also it is the renewing of our mind that gives us the place where we can prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do you know why you deal with some people that don't want to talk about the, 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 the truth of God's word is because they're hooked on tradition or they're hooked on something that they've been taught all their life and not willing to go and dig into the word. That applies to us as well. The Bible is not void of logical reasoning answers. It's not void of that. Logic, though, is illuminated by the power of the Spirit. It's when you become, you begin, when you study the Word, everybody say, think spiritually. Think logically. That's what that word reasonable means. Spiritual, that's the sense of the word. Spiritual and rational. Spiritual and reasonable. I, I don't think it would be in the book if we do believe and definitely believe that I can trust the word of God, I don't think that it would be in the book that we would have an answer for the reason of the hope if there wasn't an answer there. Just we got to dig for it. You can't just Google your way out of this issue. Somebody say amen? Okay. First of all, I want to talk to you about the next, I want to talk to you about the test of truth. Somebody say the test of truth. In a court of law, there's two primary things that goes into the test of truth. Correspondence and coherence. Everybody say correspondence and coherence. Do the facts correspond with reality? It's one place that all this feeling and emotion, for at least now, has got to be checked at the door. What are the facts? I wish our, our, our government thought that way. The second part that in a court of law establishes truth is coherence. Is it logically consistent? Does it make sense? Does the testimony, do the facts line up? Amen. Is it real? Is there a correspondence between witnesses? Is the coherence between witnesses? Is it consistent? Because you've got to understand half truth plus half truth is still all lie. Half truth plus half 
plus half-truth is still all lie. Amen. All right, I want to provide, let's look at three tests of truth. When it comes to studying scripture, I want to talk to you so you understand three tests of truth. Before I can understand how I can trust the Bible, let me test it. Let me test it. Number one, the first test is logical consistency. Logical consistency. And that is, is what is being claimed logically consistent? Or are there obvious and clear contradictions? Christianity provides a consistent explanation to the questions, where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? Where do we come from? Why are we here and where are we going? It is a consistent theme throughout all of the scripture. The Christian worldview can account for the laws of logic because we believe they reflect God's nature. And that is God is a logical God when it comes to his functionality and government. We can also understand that the naturalist worldview cannot account for the laws of logic and absolutes. They must borrow from the Christian worldview in order to, to rationally argue their points. I'm going to, at some point in time this year, I've come across something that has blown my mind. Do you realize that the humanist, we, we, you can call them New Agers or whatever the case may be, but the humanists have what they call six-sided prison, prison that culture has presented to them. And so they attack truth through this concept. Amen. Where do we find a, a, a six-sided part in Scripture? It is found in the book of Revelation when you find the phrase 666. I believe that there is a constant attack of the enemy to try to destroy, quite frankly, some of the things that they state that, that, that humanist state, that secularism state, doesn't make a lick of sense. But some of it is extremely logical. So I have to be careful when we, when we walk down the, th the part of logic, we've got to ask ourselves, is it consistent? Is it consistent? Is it consistent? If it isn't, then we need to back away. The second test is... Truth needs to be verifiable adequacy. Verifiable adequacy. That is, evidence supports the claim. There's evidence that supports the claim. If the Bible is the word of God, then there's going to be evidence that supports the claim. So it's verifiable adequacy. Truth must be verified, tested, and proven. Christian worldview can be tested through a serious examination of the evidence of birth, life, prophecies, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the proof text that is already there. Amen. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Number three, the, thing, the third part of the test that we need to look at tonight before we examine the evidence before us is, is, it, uh, is experiential relevance. Does it work? Okay. It's consistent. It's been proven, but does it work? Where is the evidence that it works? For it to be truth, it has to be consistent. It has to be proven, and it has to work. Somebody say, I, I know all three of those. Amen. 
Consider the, the statement found in the Declaration of Independence that is the basis of our civil rights. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they, that they are empowered by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. No other worldview offers that kind of concept other than the Judeo-Christian worldview. None. It's either you do what I say or we're going to kill you or there's all kinds of religious uh, uh, aspects to it. Got to make your way, earn your way. Amen. So when it comes to truth, we need to ask ourselves these, these parts when it comes to the test. All right. How can I trust the Bible to be true? How can I trust the Bible? Mr. Aaron, or rather Brian Cosby said, if the Bible is full of errors, contradictions, and lies, then Christians are the most pitiful and gullible group of people on earth. But on the other hand, if the Bible is true in every detail, then we should stake our lives and eternity on its message. Have you staked your life on the word of God? Can you stand up right at this moment and say, I'll, I'll, I'll lay my life down for this? It's not just what your purpose is. Would you be willing to lay your life down for that purpose? I, 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 I hope that the day never comes. I hope we never have to feel that, never have to sense that. But if you're convinced that this is the word of God, there's going to be something inside of you that says, I believe it so much that I can't live without it. I will not deny the word of God. I want to give you five reasons you can trust the Bible. Five reasons you can trust the Bible. The first one, to me, doesn't necessarily apply to somebody that's not going to believe the, the word of God or believe there's a God to begin with, but I want to I put it in there because I think it's the first thing we ought to look at. How can I trust the Bible? Number one, because it says it is the word of God. How can I trust this to be? Because it claims to be the word of God. Amen. Jesus often referred to and quoted the Old Testament text and gave credence to the Old Testament text. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I have no right to hold a different view than Jesus did. If Jesus spoke of the veracity and the authenticity of the Old Testament scriptures, then I too must grab a hold of that and affirm it as the inspired word of God. Jesus verified scripture to be to the divine authority when he put it like this. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. It's the last, the last authority, Matthew 4 and 4. Jesus verified scripture to be indestructible, for he said it in Matthew 5 and 17. Think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I've not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away. Mm -mm. One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass, away, pass from the law till all be fulfilled. He gave the fact that he was the, the answer to the law and that he it would not pass away until it had reached its goal. Somebody say Jesus verified it. Jesus verified scripture to be infallible. John 10 and 34. 
He said, is it not written in your law? I said, ye are gods. Or I said, ye are gods. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. What is he saying? It cannot be destroyed. What has been put in place cannot be destroyed. He quoted it and verified it. Hallelujah. You find that Jesus refers to Adam and to Eve, verifying Old Testament. He speaks about Noah and Jonah and Solomon. Amen. He talks about it directly. You remember that the two heartbroken disciples were traveling on the road to Emmaus. And what did he do? Amen. The Bible said in Luke 24 and 25, then said, then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And look what he does. And beginning at Moses, man, I'd love to have been at this Bible study. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the author of scripture begins to tell them about him so they can see who he is. And gives, no wonder the Bible says, did not our hearts burn within us as he began to break the bread of life before them? What an incredible thought. Amen. What would Jesus say if he didn't believe the scripture was divinely inspired? He never would have referred to them. He never would have called them. But he says, I'm going to show you that from Moses. He's demystifying the, the thought that Old Testament is just a bunch of mythology, stories, and concepts of men. But rather he says, it's the revelation of who I am. So I can trust the Bible because the Bible says so. Somebody say the Bible says so. Number two, I can trust the Bible because it is consistent historically. I can trust the Bible because it is consistent historically. The Smithsonian Department of Anthropology is reported to have said this about the Bible, referring to history not necessarily spiritual teachings, but referring to the Bible in a, in a historical re reference. This is coming from the Smithsonian. Much of the Bible, in particular the historical books of the Old Testament, are accurate historical documents as any that we have from antiquity and are in fact, listen to this, more accurate than many of the Egyptian, Mesopotamian, or Greek histories. These biblical records can be and are used as are other ancient documents in archaeological, archaeological work. For the most part, historical events described took place and the people's city really existed. That is not to say that names of all peoples and places mentioned can be identified today or that every event as reported in the historical books happen exactly as stated. But what, he, what they are saying is that the Word of God, the Bible, verifies history for them. Can I tell you that if the Bible was off on one city, if the Bible was off on one distance, if the Bible was off on one one deal historically, they'd be chomping on, like, on that like piranhas. But they can't because it's not. How do I trust the Bible? I'm trusting historically. Historically. Here's a part of a letter from the National Geographic. It is definitely not a bastion of, 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 of inerrancy of the word of God. 
National Geographic is not. <clears throat> Amen. It says, I refer, I refer your inquiries to our staff archaeologists, Dr. George Stewart. He said that archaeologists do indeed find the Bible a valuable reference tool and use it many times for geographical relationships, old names, and relative chronologies. On the enclosed list, you will find many articles concerning discoveries verifying events that are discussed in the Bible. Archaeologists use the Bible. Historians use the Bible as facts and ways to find it. Do you realize that it was not until 1993 that there was proof that David the king existed? Or even of Israel as a nation prior to Solomon? There was no proof. Then in 1993, archaeologists found the proof of King David's existence outside of the Bible. And at an ancient mound called Tel Dan in north Israel, words carved into a chunk uh, of stone were translated as the house of David, king of Israel. This proved that David was more than just a legend. Amen. More than just a legend. I want to tell you, God has put clues around historically that bring veracity to the word of God. In 2005, Israeli archaeologists found King David's palace relying, listen to this, relying on the Bible as one of their many tools. She, she said that that's the way that they found the palace. By this. Okay. <clears throat> Wayne... Jackson wrote an article on the accuracy of the Bible, and he states, quote, The biblical writings contain literally hundreds of references to genealogy, typogra typography, relating to those lands which the prophets and the apostles traveled. We are quite casual in our typographical allusions. Speaking, we usually say, going up for going north and down for going south. For example, you might say you're going to travel from Atlanta up to Chicago, through Chicago, uh, though Chicago is almost 500 feet lower than Atlanta. But yet we say we're going up. The Bible writers were not like this. They're precise in recording elevations. One travels from Jerusalem in the south and goes down to Antioch some 550 miles to the north but because it goes down from the mountain that is the correct geographical description when you begin to begin to study it not once is there a geographical blunder in the sacred volumes in spite of the fact that the ancients did not uh, uh, possess sophisticated instruments like we have today. They yet saw it and declared it. In the book of Acts, listen to this. In the book of Acts, the historian Luke mentions 32 countries, uh, 54 cities, and nine of the Mediterranean islands. There is not one, not one of the slightest mistakes in any of these references. 
Luke has been criticized over the centuries to be sure. His influence has yet rather increased. However, while his critics uh, 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 have gone off the scene, his credibility has risen. Amen. Can you imagine writing all this and being somebody just picking it out and telling the story? <clears throat> the Roman historian, I hope y'all are okay with just, this is, this is just meat and potatoes right now. I hope you're okay, all right? We're not swinging from the chandelier and preaching and spitting and blabbing, but I just want to talk to you today about how I, I can trust the Bible. The Roman historian Tacticus was a pagan who hated Christianity. And he wrote about Jesus from about 15, uh, 115 to 117 A.D. That's not too long. Jesus, Jesus uh, hung on the cross about 30 A.D. So we've got what? 80 years, 90 years, that this historian who hated Christianity writes this. Christ, who is executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius, what is it doing? Marking the history. Jesus was here. He was crucified by Pilate. Where do we find that out? Mm. All right. And then he goes on to say, that checked, listen to his, 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 his verbiage here, that checked the pernicious superstition for a short time. So he said that Pilate killed him and it stopped it for a little while. All right. But it broke out afresh, not only in Judea, where the plague first arose. But in Rome itself, where all the horrible and shameful things in the world collect and find a home. I would, say, I would say that this guy is not a fan of Jesus Christ, but yet he wrote historically and declared he was here, he was crucified, he started a group, and it spread throughout the whole area. Mm -mm -mm. Somebody say, thank the Lord. I can trust the Bible. Jesus can be found in the Jewish rabbinical writings of, of the, around the 200 ADs. And I'm just giving you bits and pieces because there's a bunch of other stuff. It, it, you begin to research, it is unreal how much historical evidence outside of the Bible there is about Jesus, Christianity, or the Old Testament. This is what the Jewish rabbinical writings wrote. Jesus was hanged on Passover Eve, 40 days, previously the herald... Uh, and cried, he is being led out for stoning because he, was, he practiced sorcery and led Israel astray and enticed them into apostasy. Whoever has anything to say in his defense, let him come and declare it. As nothing was brought forward in his defense, he was hanged on Passover Eve. They hated Jesus. The Romans hated Jesus. But they still said he was here. They still said he was crucified. They still said that he went that, that the, the gospel went forward. Amen. There are so many and too many historical proofs to put into this message. But let me just give you one more before we go to the next one. And that is let consider this. David wrote about Jesus and the crucifixion 1,000 years before he was crucified. But crucifixion had not been invented 
at that point. Matter of fact, he wrote about it. 500 years, David is writing about crucifixion, and it took 500 years to become a reality. The first crucifixion happened 500 years after he said that. How did he know that? How did he know that? All right. I say I can trust the Bible because it's the word of God and it says it is. I can trust the Bible because it is consistent historically. Number three, I can trust the Bible because it is cohesive in content. It is cohesive in contact. Amen. We, we talked about this. I'm going to briefly run through it. How did some 40 authors from 1500 B.C. to 100 A.D. write in such a unified fashion so that you can look over here in Genesis, Genesis and it talks about uh, the one that is promised in 3 and 15 that is going to be crushed and then you uh, and he's going to bruise Satan's uh, head or crush Satan's head and his heel is going to be bruised and then you go over here and you'll find it in the New Testament becoming a reality. How do you find that you could pull a thread in Genesis and it buckles in the book of Acts? How do you find that from 40 different authors and yet there was not one person that was orchestrating it all? How could they? How could 66 books stay so cohesive over 1,600 years? How? What about the moral themes of the Bible? How about the Bible is consistent with its moral themes? How you live, what you do, amen. Diverse writers, but a unified message. Do you realize the Bible spoke about Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you realize the Bible speaks about Sodom and Gomorrah 40 times in various passages? Yet, every time it is mentioned, there is a same theme. God hates sin and he judges sin. Nobody wrote, well, what a beautiful city. It was two or three sore heads, but everybody else was nice. no. It was consistent. How do we get that consistency over 1,500 years from Genesis all the way over to the prophets? How do we do that without, amen, a unified presence? Let's consider just with me for a little bit, and I'm not going to go into depths of this because I've done it before, and I want to do it again later in one part of our series. A young Bedouin uh, in, in, the, in the 50s, the 1950s, a young Bedouin shepherd was in uh, the area around the Dead Sea, and he happened to be throwing rocks, and he threw rocks into a cave. And when he did, he heard breakings, and he heard clangings. And what he found was uh, all kinds of clay pots full of ancient scrolls, full of ancient scrolls. And so all of the, 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 you know, the scholars and the, and the, 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 the priest or the, the ones that, that were rabbis began to study it. They began to study it, and, and they studied it. In all, scholars have identified the remains in the Dead Sea Scrolls, about 825 to 870 separate scrolls. The scrolls can be divided into two categories, biblical and non-biblical. Fragments of every book of the Hebrew canon Old Testament scripture were discovered, except for the book of Esther. There are now identified among the scrolls, scrolls 19 copies of the book of Isaiah, 25 copies of Deuteronomy, and 30 copies of Psalms. The Isaiah scrolls uh, found relatively, were found relatively intact are 1,000 years old. Not just 1,000 years old, but 1,000 years older than any previous scroll. Were you able to go to that area? 
when you were in Israel? Okay, we're at the Dead Sea. And of all the places, they call it the Dead Sea because it is dead. It has no outlet. But I do not remember right offhand, maybe somebody does, uh, how far below sea level it is. But what it was is that it was the perfect, perfect humidity and temperature to preserve those, those scrolls for all these years. And when they begin to lay them out and begin to study them, and there is now a museum that has one of the most incredible uh, 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 vaults and protection. It, 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 can be, it can withstand, they say, an atomic bomb. They now, the Hebrews have that and they've studied it. And you can't touch it, but you can see replicas. And it is mind-blowing to think that God said, okay, I'm going to have a bunch of people that want to fight me, that want to go against my scripture. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to stick this away for thousands of years so that the modern society will have the technology to study it and preserve it and verify its veracity. You find in that that segment of scrolls, the last word of Joseph, of Judah, Levi, Naphtali, and also Amram, the father of Moses, all in the scrolls. The scrolls have revolutionized textual criticism of the Old Testament. Interestingly, now with manuscripts uh, predating the medieval period, we find these texts in substantial agreement with the Masoretic text as well as widely variety forms. Overall, overall, here's what I know in looking at why Isaiah. Isaiah is the most pristine recorded or, or, or saved scroll. Why Isaiah? Somebody quickly, how many chapters does the book of Isaiah have in it? 66. What does Isaiah have in it? It has the prophecy about the coming Messiah. It has the prophecy of his death, burial, and resurrection. It has a prophecy, and you'll find it over and over, that he's the creator, that he's the only God. And you can look into the text of Isaiah and find the encompassing word of God in its 66 chapters. God, is no he knows what he's doing. I said he knows what he's doing. How can I trust the Bible? Because he had some Dead Sea Scrolls waiting for our culture and our world to find them. I don't don't make a mummy shout. I don't make the mummy shout. So how do I know I can trust the Bible? Because it says it is the word of God. Because it is consistent historically. It is cohesive in its content and unity. Number four, how can I trust the Bible? Because its prophecies are accurate. Because its prophecies are accurate. The Bible contains 54 direct messianic, speaking of the coming of Christ, messianic prophecies it contains over 300 messianic references now i'm not a gambling man i really don't understand odds they're odd to me but the odds of being struck by lightning in the united states are about one in 114,195 
That's the odds of you getting struck by lightning. The odds of you being audited by the IRS are one in 160. But Forbes also puts this factor in place. If you earn less than 200000 you are probably more likely to marry an alien than being audited. <laughs> Neither one of those prospects sound good to me. The odds of finding a pearl in an oyster is 1 in 12,000. 1 in 12,000. The odds of you being attacked by a shark is 1 in 3,748,067. The odds of you being attacked by a shark. It's a lot less if you never go in the water. That'll preach right there. Is that enough logic for y'all? The odds of winning the $1 million Monopoly, McDonald's Monopoly game is 1 in 451,822,158. That's the odds. Play on, my brother. <laughs> Hallelujah. Professor Peter W. Stoner wrote an interesting book called Science Speaks, an evaluation of certain Christian evidences, he calls it. Dr. Stoner employed the same mathematical odds-making as, as, as everybody, I guess, does to certain things to present those odds. He took, now I, I said earlier, there are 54 direct messianic prophecies concerning Jesus, and he took eight of them and began to study them and to begin to apply mathematical odds to them. Let me share with you which ones they were. The Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5 and 2. A messenger would prepare the way for Messiah, speaking of John the Baptist, Malachi 3 and 1. A messenger will enter in Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey, Zechariah 9 and 9. The <clears throat> Messiah <coughs> will be betrayed by a friend and suffer wounds in his own hands, Zechariah 13 and 6. Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11 and 12. The betrayal money will be used to purchase a potter's, a potter's field. Zechariah 11 and 13. The Messiah will remain silent while he's afflicted. Isaiah 53 and 7. Messiah will die by having his hands and feet pierced. Psalm 22 and 16. All right. The odds. Can you throw up something for me? Real quickly, I meant to give this to you. Get ready. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some numbers, and I want you to throw it up there, okay? The odds of these eight prophecies being fulfilled accidentally in the life of one person is one and in ten to the 17th power. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to put a one up. Then I want you to put... Six sets of three zeros. One with, you know how to do, you know I'm doing the comma and the three more and another comma. I need six sets of three zeros. Praise God. <laughs> what it means is that you're more likely, much more likely to win Monopoly. Okay. 
Now, I'm going to stop right here because I want to talk to you about Texas. I want to talk to you about Texas. I love Texas. Are you, are you working on that number? Okay. Lord have mercy. She's she going to have to have more calculators and more digits and all that kind of stuff. But let me talk to you about Texas. I want to talk to you about Texas. I love my home state. I love it for many reasons. I was born there, and, it, it, you know, you can take the... You can take the man out of Texas, but can't take Texas out of the man. That's just a, a statement, okay? I love Indiana. It's my, it's my second home. Do you have it up there? Phew. How'd you like to see that in your bank account? <laughs> okay. I don't know about you. I can't phantom that. I, I can't. I, I'm sure that there's some of you that are much more uh, in tune with mathematics than I am in numbers, and you would you'd be able to tell exactly what it is and all that. But i got to think otherwise. But I'm so glad that, that uh, the good uh, Dr. Stoner uh, put this in as well in his chapter. He, he said, let me talk, talk a little bit more about Texas. It's big. It is so big, they say, that if a Yankee starts driving in Texarkana, and goes all the way to El Paso, that by the time he gets to El Paso, he stops saying yuns and says y'all. That's how big it is. Matter of fact, they tell us that if you take the state of Texas and you would fold it to, to, toward the east, that it would reach into the Atlantic Ocean. If you fold it toward the west, it would reach into the Pacific Ocean. If you fold it to the south, it would bypass a part of Mexico and get into the Pacific, Pacific Ocean. I get it out there. If you fold it up north, it almost reaches to uh, uh, Canada. I know Alaska's bigger, but they don't count. <laughs> I mean, ain't nobody there, but uh, nonetheless, okay. So Texas is big. The state is so large that El Paso is closer to San Diego than it is Houston. And Houston is closer to Jacksonville, Florida, than it is to El Paso. It's big, y'all. It's big, y'all. And so here's what, the, what he did. He says, stack silver dollar coins side by side and two feet high in an area the size of Texas. Put a mark on one coin. Mix them all together. Hide it and then blindfold someone and tell them to go find the marked silver dollar on their first try. That's the odds of eight being randomly, eight prophecies of Jesus Christ randomly happening to somebody by accident. Woo! Can you trust the Bible? Look at that. Look at that number right there. You can trust the Bible. You can trust the Bible. You can trust the Bible. Amen. Uh, 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 I, oh, Lord, help me today. Praise God. Can I just, just ask, ask you some question? Is that how could the Messiah be born in a place that wasn't his hometown. How could he do that? 
How can it be prophesied? How is it that, that, that what are the odds of, of a guy coming and, and saying, okay, here's the Messiah? And that happening, what are the, what, what are the odds of him coming in on a donkey? How, how, could, how could it be that he would just simply say, okay, I'm going to be betrayed by a friend and suffer wounds in my own hands, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be hung on a tree, I'm going to have my hands pierced and my feet pierced, and, and, and I'm going to be quiet while they beat me up. How could he predict that? How is it possible that he could predict that? I'll tell you how. Because he's God. Because he's God. Hundreds of years before it ever happened, he was predicting it to be true. And yet some little narrow-minded, thin-brained professor says, oh, this Bible ain't right. No, you ain't right. I'm, I'm praying for you to go to heaven and be a believer. But I want to tell you that the Bible, you can trust it because of its prophetic prophetic word. Let me give you just one more illustration, and then I'm going to move off of the, the, the prophecy. Amen. How about Ezekiel's prophecy concerning the city of Tyre? This is what he prophesied in the book of uh, Ezekiel chapter 26 concerning the city of Tyre. Seven prophecies are contained in this chapter which were written in 590 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar is going to conquer the city, verse 7 through 11. One, uh, one nation... Will uh, uh, or other nations rather will assist Nebuchadnezzar in verse three. The city will be made like a barren rock in verse four and fourteen. It will become a place for the spreading of fishing nets. Its stones—that's another prophecy. Its stones and timbers will be thrown into the sea. Will be thrown into the sea. Other cities will fear greatly at the fall of Tyre. Verse sixteen. The old city of Tyre will never be rebuilt, verse 14. Four years after this was prophesied, we find that Nebuchadnezzar shows up and lays a 13-year siege on Tyre. The city finally fell in 573 B.C. It was discovered that everything of value had been moved to a nearby island, and so the whole city just moved to another location. 200. And 41 years later, Alexander the Great arrives on the scene. Fearing the fleet of Tyre might be used against his homeland, he decided to take the island where the city had been moved. He accomplished his goal by building a causeway from the mainland to the item, island. How did he do that? By building it from the boards and all the material in the old city, just like the prophet said was going to happen. He laid them out and made his way to the city. Neighboring cities were so frightened by Alexander's conquest, they immediately opened their gates to him. And ever since that time, Tyre has remained in ruins and is now a place where fishermen spread their nets. How can you trust the Bible? Because its prophecies are ac accurate. Finally, how can you trust the Bible? Because it transforms lives. The sense of morality and justice and right and wrong are from its words. Our need for intimacy and relationships and community are come from his word. Amen. The greatest story that the Bible is the word of God is the life-changing effect it has on its readers and those that receive it. Cornelius' house 
Amen. We find that the Holy Ghost fell when Peter was preaching the word of the Lord. Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians 1 and 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us, amen, which are saved, it is the power of God. You don't know like I know. I said, you don't know like I know. Anybody here ever, 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 ever ate a, uh, 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 a pineapple from the Philippines? Raise your hand. Ever? Okay, but David, you don't know like I know they beat Hawaii pineapples all to pieces. They beat the pineapples you get off. How do I know that? Because I ate them. I tasted them. I read in the Bible, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. How do I know the word is true? I've eaten it. As the prophet said, I do. I'm going to eat the book. I'm going to eat the book. Hallelujah. I know it is true because I've prayed it and it's come to pass. I believe it. Amen. And I was filled with the Holy Ghost and fire just like the Bible said. Just like the Bible said. You don't have to be a mathematician. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be somebody that's got a law degree or a doctor's degree, amen, to know this is the word. I can tell you because of what it did for me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. If it was ineffective, why did they ban it? Why did they ban it in Islamic countries? Why did they ban it in communist China? If it isn't effective, just don't buy it. Don't just let it go. But it is effective. It's life changing. It's life changing. Amen. Psalm 19 and 7. And I close with these verses. The law of the Lord is perfect because it converts the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The, the statue of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is true, enlighten the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is my servant warmed, and in keeping of them there is great reward. I remember a story my dad used to tell about a a man who was mentally uh, handicapped and he would come to church and he'd love God and he'd worship God and he just loved the Lord so much. And out in the world, they made fun of him. They'd pick at him and bully him. And uh, one day, one of these idiot bullies looked at him and said, you're just a crackpot. He said, yeah. God's sunshine shines through all the cracks. How are you going to look at God? How do you see him? People call you crazy because you believe the scripture is the inerrant word of God. I want to tell you, I have no other recourse because of what I know and what I've experienced. It is the word of God. Then I need to live it. I need to study it. I need to dig in. Amen. I should. Praise God. I started to tell everybody to shut it off, but I, I'll, I'll wait. We're addicted to preaching in, in the Pentecostal ranks. We're addicted to, we want a good sermon. 
we want something that's put together very beautifully and flowery that will get us on our feet and foam at the mouth and amen. And some of sometimes it's just emotion. There's no meat to it. Not, not, not all the time. You understand what I'm saying. But, oh, God, thank God for people that have a hunger for the word of God. Praise God. If, 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 if we're going to grow, we've got to have a hunger for the word of God. Stand with me, please. How do I know I can trust the Bible? How do I know? Not just because my mom and dad told me. Matter of fact, there come a day I had to go and stand up on it on my own and see, is this real or not real? I had my own questions, my own doubts, my own concerns. Thank God for his word to be true. I've proven it. Over and over again, he's proved it over and over again in my life. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word today. Lord, thank you for your word today. Let us be convicted and committed to your word as being truth, as being gospel. I wouldn't know about creation if it wasn't for your word. I wouldn't know about what it means to be a family if it wasn't for your word. I wouldn't know, God, how to make a living and how to, how to be productive if it wasn't for your word. I wouldn't know how to be saved would know that I was a sinner, Lord, but I thank you for your word. I thank you for the consistency of your word. I thank you, God, for how it all puts together, Lord, so beautifully and wonderfully. And we give you the praise for it all. Now let's go study it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. We pray you have been encouraged. If you would like more information about Medora Pentecostal Church, you can check out our website at www.medorachurch.com.